0: You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey, your journey, your, your journey, journey, your journey starts here. Here.
1: Good, Good evening, and welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Libraries. Writers Live series. I am Vivian Fisher, manager of this beautiful African American department, and it is my pleasure this evening to introduce our Writers Live author. Our New York Times best-selling author and speaker, Kimbala Lawson Robey, has published 26 books. <laughs> What's more impressive is she has sold more than 2.8 million copies of her novel. And they have frequently and she have and they have frequented numerous best-selling lists, including the New York Times, USA Today, The Washington Post, Publishers Weekly, Essence, Upscale, Black Christian News. AALBC.com, Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com, Walmart, the Dallas Morning News, the Austin Chronicle, and many others. Over the years, Kimbala has spoken to thousands of women at churches, conferences, expos, workshops, luncheons, libraries, colleges, universities, and bookstores. She shares her own personal journey straight from her heart and has a strong passion toward helping women discover their God-given purpose. Kimberly is the 2013 NAACP Image Award Writer for Outstanding Literary Work in Fiction. She's also the recipient of the 2017 SOAR Radio Trails Blazer of Honor Award, the 2017 Southwest Florida Reading Festival Distinguished Author Award, the 2014 AAMBC Female Author of the Year Award, and in 2006, seven, nine, 10, 11, and 13, (laughs) she was the African American Literary Awards uh, show in New York. She was the Female Author of the Year Award, the Blackboard Fiction, Book of the Year Award in 2001, and the list goes on. Kimberly's novels deal with very real issues, including corruption within the church. Can we get an amen? And the consequences of betraying God's word. Drug and gambling addiction, infidelity, single motherhood, breast cancer, infertility, sibling rivalry, domestic violence, childhood sexual abuse, mental illness, caregiving of a parent, racial and gender discrimination in the workplace, sexual harassment, and overweight issues, to name a few. In addition, Kimberly's books offer a message of redemption, forgiveness, and the realities of everyday life. Kimberly resides in Illinois with her husband, Will. Her 27th title, Better late than never will be discussed this evening. So please join me in welcoming to Bo- back to Baltimore and the Pratt Library, Kimberly Lawson Roby.
0: Oh my gosh! Good evening, everyone. Oh, it's so wonderful to be back here in Baltimore, and boy, are all of you here, and you have turned out for me tonight, so thank you so very much for that. Um, I was sharing uh, with Vivian, and my publicist, Linda, um, is here from my publishing house um, in New York. It dawned on me that when Casting the First Stone came out, okay, hello, can you hear me now? Um, but when I, uh, was on tour for Casting the First Stone in January 2000, Baltimore was one of the cities. And so, you know, it has, I guess, now come full circle. And as a lot of you know, this is my 15th and final book in the Reverend Curtis Black series. And, well, maybe some of you didn't know that, so. Um, but it has, it's been a, a great journey and just a journey of a lifetime, and so this is now my eighth event um, in the last nine days, all different states, so you can imagine what I'm figuring is at 53, it doesn't feel like 20 years ago when I was 33 years old, and um, I'm feeling it a little bit physically, but it has just brought so much joy to my heart because this career this writing career that I have and then just the series and what it has meant to so many of my readers just hearing the comments at the events and on social media and uh, some of the direct emails that I have received um, just has made all the difference because when you're sitting at home and you're writing book after book and you're doing it year after year you wonder does it really mean anything, you know, are your readers really getting something from it, and yes, some entertainment, you're hoping for that as well, and you're hoping that people will turn the pages, but you're hoping that the messages ring through as well, and for Curtis, of course, the big question has come up, why now, you know, why are you ending the series, and um, my plan from the very beginning, well, first of all, I'll talk about that, I never planned on turning this into a series, so for me, Casting the First Stone was just going to be another standalone title, But when it did become a series, I knew that from the start that here we had this wayward man, this this awful pastor who was consumed with money and power um, and women, a very married pastor, I knew that I wanted to show that he could turn his life around for the better. I wanted to show that any of us, no matter what we've done, no matter what we may still be doing, that we can change for the better if we choose to, and we can get to a place in our life where we will learn to treat people the way we want to be treated. And so Curtis is in that place, and he's been in that place for a few years and, of course, is dealing with you know, the whole idea of reaping what we sow. You know, He turned his life around, but he's had to really suffer along the way and watch his children suffer in the process. And so finally, he is now this true man of God. He is this great father, and he's certainly now faithful to his wife. Um, But when I wrote uh, my first book, Behind Closed Doors, and then the second book, Here and Now, I had written it about um, real-life issues. The characters were dealing with one thing or another, but what I heard from readers more often than not was that the reason they kept reading or that they had enjoyed it was because it was about real-life issues, and they could relate their own lives to it. And if they had not experienced some of what the characters were dealing with, then they knew family members or friends or coworkers. And so I decided then that I would continue that process, continue figuring out what social issues I could write about, even if they were controversial and even if they were taboo, but hard topics that maybe we don't talk about enough. And I said to my husband, you know, I really want a topic this time, though, that everyone will know about. They will have experienced it or they will have seen it, but it will have affected them in one way or another. And he said, what about a lot of the issues um, that go on in some of our churches? And I speaking of my husband, this is Mr Mr. Roby, so <laughs> No, not you <laughs> So it's got, So I've got Brandon saying, "No, not me, huh? So thank you for being here. Brandon is from our city um, in Rockford, Illinois, and uh, was Will's CrossFit trainer from 2008 until March of this year when he became a part of Baltimore. So he's now yours now here. So, right. <laughs> um, But so Will said, you know, what about a lot of the issues that go on in some of our churches? And that's when I thought, you know, that is really something to, something to think about because I've been in church my entire life and I have seen a lot and heard a lot and not such good things and you know it was one thing after another and we might have a pastor for two or three years and then they were ousted for one thing or another and maybe five years and a pastor was doing great when he stayed for five years but that's not a lot when you're talking about a man of the cloth and someone who says that they've been called by God to preach and um, there were scandals and sometimes it, it was infidelity sometimes it was because of money and maybe it was a power struggle but it was just one thing after another and so from there, that's how I created the character Reverend Curtis Black and created the storyline because I started thinking, for me anyway, one of the worst parts of what happens when a pastor isn't doing what he's supposed to do. Well, certainly he's, he's misleading innocent people in a congregation. That's one thing. But I started thinking about the effects on the wife and the children and what happens inside the household. And so from there, the story was born and... Um, book came out, as I was saying earlier, in January 2000, went out on the tour to city after city, and what I learned uh, without really realizing that this was going to be the case was that Curtis Black wasn't just in Rockford, Illinois. He was alive and well in every single city in the country. Um, And so readers were coming out to the events, and the discussions were lively and expressive, and sometimes there were little bits of debates going on, and the next thing I knew, people were telling me the real names of their pastors, um, who were just like the Reverend Curtis Black, and that's when I knew how prevalent it was, you know, this idea of corruption and, and the problems within the church, and What I eventually went on to realize, too, was that it was important to write this story, not to ridicule the church, because I would certainly never, ever do that, not with as much as I love God, and I try to honor him, and I try to do the right thing, and I do try to try to treat people the way that I want to be treated and I certainly would never ridicule pastors and you know their wives and their children or the church but what I wanted to show was that sometimes you know we can get caught up in the idea of that human being who's standing in the pulpit and that's where the mistake is and we have to recognize that this is another human being who makes mistakes the same as we do and so instead of praising another human being for me it's bringing the focus back to praising God and you know making sure our own personal relationships are intact and making sure that if we're Christians, we're reading the word for ourselves and then making sure again, and I say this over and over again, just treat people the way you want to be treated. If we do that, the world would be such a better place um, to live in. And so that's really where I wanted to go with the series. But then, of course, you know, Curtis starts out in Casting the First Stone. If you've been following the series, he's married to Tanya. Tanya is not happy with what's going on, and she's not okay with it. And, you know, she's calling him on what he's doing, and there are the arguments. And so eventually, he is ousted from that church, and she divorces him, and, you know, she takes their daughter, and she moves on. And, so I never planned on writing a series, and then I moved on as well. So um, the next book, the fourth book that I wrote, um, if you've read some of my standalone titles, is entitled It's a Thin Line. Um, my fifth book was A Taste of Reality, and you know, of course had nothing to do with Curtis, nothing to do with the church. But when I was traveling around on tour, which I've done for every single book, went out on the tour for It's a Thin Line, did the same thing for A Taste of Reality, and I always say I have the best readers in the whole wide world, and I'm sure a lot of writers feel that way, but I do. When I say the support and the loyalty that all of you have given me for so many years, so... You're, you're always kind, and so I'd go to the events, and so I'd talk about It's a Thin Line, and just like I'm doing tonight, and you know I'm excited just like all authors are when you have a new book coming out, and so people were nice, and they'd say, well, this was a nice book, but, you know... <laughs> what is the Reverend Curtis Black up to? You know, and so, you know, I'd be thinking, well, he's not up to anything, and, you know, it's over for him, and, you know, that's kind of that, and, and so I just sort of just ignored the comments at the events and the email messages and then wrote the fifth book, A Taste of Reality. Same thing happened. Finally there were letters coming into my publisher, the publisher that I had at that time, saying, you know, is she ever going to write a sequel to Casting the First Stone? And we want to see more of Reverend Curtis Black, and still didn't pay a lot of attention to it. And finally, it was my literary agent um, who contacted me, and she had been at a dental appointment, yeah, no less, and uh, was in New York. It was a pretty large practice, and so she checked in, and there were three receptionists, and so she just went back and took her seat, but she could hear the the conversation of those women talking. And so they were in their conversation, and so she realized they were talking about this terrible pastor. And so she thought, wow, this must be the reason that Kim's books are popular. And so she said, I couldn't help it. You know, I was eavesdropping, but I just wanted to hear, because she's kind of wanting to hear which pastor it was, you know, probably in that New York area, and it just continued on and on. And so she said, you know, they were getting upset and, you know, just really bothered by what the pastor had been doing. And she said, but then before long, one of them said something about the pastor, and the other one said, See, that's what I'm talking about. That's why I can't stand that Reverend Curtis Black. <laughs> and so she thought, Oh my gosh, they're not talking about a real person at all. <laughs> and, so she said, I couldn't help myself. I went up and introduced myself. I told them that I was your literary agent and, you know, was representing you and just wanted to know why they felt the way they did about the book and that topic. And she said, and it was what I thought and what you have been thinking. You know, they can relate to it. They do know this character, and they know him in real life. And she said, when you have readers who support you the way that yours does, then you really have an obligation to give them what they're asking for. And so that's how Too Much of a Good Thing came about, which was four years after Casting the First Stone was released, and as I was sitting and figuring out, well, how do I move forward with this second book? And so then I started thinking back to what I had experienced and what I had seen in my own city and that was when pastors are sometimes divorced um, by their wives and they are ousted from churches they just go get a new wife and a new church and so that's what he does and too much of a good thing and this time he believes that he's a little bit smarter because he believes well you know what Tanya questioned me and argued with me and you know I need to find a wife who knows her place. And so he believes that he has found this in Mariah, who is pretty passive, and he treats her pretty badly. But in the end, he finds out she's not passive anymore. Um, And so that's that. He is ousted from the church. Another divorce happens. Then there is the third book, The Best Kept Secret. And so for me, I thought, well, a lot of series are actually trilogies. And so I thought I'll write these three. You know, I thought I knew what everybody was looking for, and that will be the end of it. Wrote the best-kept secret, and I received way more requests for more Curtis Black than I had with the first two combined. And that's when I thought, so we have a problem here. Maybe I just don't know how to end a book because... You know what am I going to do now, and how much more can Curtis do, and you know what am I going to say and Of course, you know in the best kept secret, Curtis did finally meet his match in Charlotte, and she wasn 't Tanya, and she wasn 't Mariah, and she started to treat him just as badly or worse than he had treated those first two wives and so the story continues, and at the end, I thought, well, you know what do I do with book four and was just trying to figure that out, and didn 't want to repeat myself didn't want to hear all of you say, well, you know, this is no different than than the first three. And so I was a little troubled by that and just hesitating on moving forward with it and even figuring out the outline of it. And so finally, I said to my husband, I don't know how much more Curtis can do, you know. So... You know, my career may be over if this is the only thing my readers want to see from me, and it just kind of went back and forth, but I kept saying that to him, and, you know, my husband, being the, the humorous, humorous man that he is, he just kind of looked at me with a smile, and I said, again, you know, I don't know how much more he can do and how long he can do this, and he said, well, I'll tell you what, Victor Newman's been doing it over 30 years, you know. <laughs> And so from there, it continued. And, you know, kind of fast forwarding, you know, throughout the series, the children grew up. And I started to write about their lives. And, you know, as that old cliche says, the apple definitely does not fall too far from the tree. And so they had their issues, and so Curtis is, of course, now you know just a little disturbed because he's seeing that he hasn't been a great example to them, and, and a lot of that has to do with you know all of the wrong that he's done in the past. And then you know there is Alicia and Matthew. Matthew has made a couple of mistakes, but he's still that good child with a good heart. He's always been my favorite character, I think, throughout the entire series. But then, if you've been following the series all along, you know Dylan comes into the picture and. Uh, Uh, Dylan is nothing nice, um, you know, and that's probably an understatement, and so he is the true firstborn child of Curtis Black and kind of blows into town and feels like, look, these other children, they've had their time with my dad, and so it's my turn, and so there's trouble that comes behind that. Now, uh, today, probably last year's book would have been Um, the final book in the series. But the one thing that I hadn't done that I had wanted to do was to write about a female pastor. And so that's why you saw Sin of a Woman um, last June. So now with Better Late Than Never, um, again, it comes full circle. And Curtis, uh, in the first chapter, receives a phone call from his brother-in-law. He's been estranged from his sister and only sibling Ever since he left home and went to college, um, he decided he was going to separate himself from his mom and his sister, not because they had done anything wrong to him, but his childhood had been so horrible and so painful, he just wanted to put it behind him and that's the route that he chose uh, to travel on but his brother-in-law calls him and says you know your sister is terminally ill and she's now decided not to accept any more treatments and of course Curtis is devastated but is wondering you know will she want to see me you know she wants nothing to do with me and his brother-in-law says you know that's kind of beside the point at this point and you need to come and so he and Charlotte do go after church and uh, they connect very quickly she is glad to see her brother he's very glad to see her and and over those next days and weeks they really start to talk about their childhood they try to catch up on everything they've lost over these years and of course that forces Curtis to really start to relive you'll see vividly what happened to him in his childhood at the hand of his father, who was a chronic alcoholic, um, the abuse that Curtis had to endure and the poverty, the impoverished life that they lived in simply because his dad, he, he did work, but because he spent his money on the women and the alcohol, leaving Curtis's mom to try to fend for her and her two children by herself. And then with Charlotte, what you'll see with her this time is that you'll learn that she despises the idea of being first lady of the church. And partly because she's in a situation where sometimes women will brush right past her just to get to her husband. I wanted to write from that perspective because I've met a number of first ladies throughout these years that will tell me that exact same story. And pretty much they're invisible to some of the members in the church. It's just about pastor, Pastor, pastor. They're not thinking about what's happening to those women the other six days in the week. I've had them thank me for writing and saying what they're not able to say in terms of what they're dealing with the rest of the week um, inside of their households. And so she's at a point now where she's just thinking, I just need a break from church, period. She wants to just not even be in church on Sunday morning and is trying to figure out a way to tell Curtis that. And then there's Cortina, the baby of the family. (laughs) Who is now 12 years old, and as you know, um, I've not written a story per se in her voice, but you really see her throughout, and Cortina is probably giving them more trouble than all of the other children put together when they were 12 years old, and she starts out texting and then you can imagine texting turns into a whole lot more than that. And um, so that's where that story goes. So um, I think I sum it up. I don't know if any of you have read it. Has anyone actually read Better Late Than Never? Okay. So I've been asking in each of the cities for people who had read it by the time I arrived, you know, were you satisfied with the ending? Oh, okay. So that's the good news. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. So, yes. So, no, I I appreciate that. And but I've still been getting the question, you know, well, you know, maybe you're just a little tired. You know, maybe you just need a little break, you know, and maybe you'll still write about him, you know, a couple of years from now, maybe even 10 years from now. But that's not my plan. I really, really wanted um, to end it this way. That had always been my plan. I would certainly never want to take Curtis back you know, to where he used to be, and I just wanted um, things to end on a good note, on a positive note, and of course, uh, the message is still treat people the way you want to be treated, but also in this one, what I've been sharing um, at all of my events is that when you take a look at how Curtis and his sister are reunited, that I'm hoping if you have a family member or a close friend that you're not speaking to, for whatever that reason is. I don't care how badly they hurt you or betrayed you. Know that life really is short. We hear that and we say that, but it's really too short um, to separate yourself. And you certainly don't want to see that loved one in their casket, or you don't even want them to see you in yours. You want to fix whatever that is if you're, if you're able to do that. So, so that's kind of the series and, um, you know, just wanted to kind of take you back a little bit and bring you forward and, you know, share what's going on. But I also want to allow you an opportunity to ask um, some questions. I'm sure the question will come up kind of how I got started. I always like to share that story, hoping that it will inspire any aspiring writers who are here or whatever it is that you're wanting to do in terms of um, your goals, your dreams, your purpose. I'm hoping that it will motivate you to, to go for it. So, any questions or comments? Yes. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh, okay. Yes, so last, uh, well, I guess I got to get my time. I guess it was two Fridays ago. Yes, Variety Magazine um, did the official announcement, but the option, um, the rights have been optioned for a television series. So, yes, (laughs) yes. So I am very, very excited about it. Um, An option means now the production company has the right to take it out and find a home for it. And um, of course, now in, in speaking with uh, the pre- the president of the company, but who will be the actual producer. Um, she's looking, of course, for the perfect Curtis. I think that's probably the most important aspect for us. Um, you know, a, a great showrunner and a director and, of course, the, the lead writers. Um, and then she's been gracious enough to allow me to sign on as one of the executive producers as well. So, yes. Do I get to pick? I don't. I don't well yeah she is she's she's really being great about it, and I think that's why I've passed on dills in the past because i didn't want creative control that's not my expertise because obviously it's going to have to change a little bit to get it in a TV, TV format. All of that I have no idea, I have no knowledge or expertise, but what I do know is that when I see the script each week, and that's what I, she and I have been talking for a few months on and off, is if I see something that all of you are going to be unhappy about once you watch it, I want to be able to say we probably shouldn't have that scene in there. Or, you know, that dialogue is okay, but, you know, we probably need to reword that. And so that's, that's my main goal for me. Um, but, yes, I've always said who I wanted Curtis um, to be. Ever since casting the first stone for eighteen years, and you know I've said you know I know of a, a few other author or actors who could play him, but my all time pick has been Blair Blair Underwood, so from the beginning, yeah, yeah <laughs> She didn't like it. What did she say? Oh, is it, you have a better person? Who's that? Ooh. No, she said uh, Dennis Haysbert, so, Mm-mm. yeah, I, he's, been, he's been Curtis to me for a long time, yeah, yeah, so, hoping that we can get him, but if not, but I was saying, um, when uh, Variety did the article and they did one at home, um, uh, Morris Chestnut, now that he's older, you know, I also think that um, he could play him in, and we wouldn't be starting um, when he's 30 right at Casting the First Stone, I would want to start, and she agrees with that, with the best kept secret when he marries Charlotte, and then you'd have flashbacks to t- his marriage to Tanya, and his marriage to Mariah, and then moving forward, yeah, mm-hmm. yes, yes, pardon me, I'm sorry, can you, what, what am I going to do next? So yeah, so not another. S- oh, what am I going to do besides? Yeah, besides that. Um, in terms of writing, I mean, I love writing. That's still my passion. I know it's still you know a part of my purpose. But my next book that you will likely see will be nonfiction, and so I've just been wanting to do that. Something that will you know motivate and inspire women um, as as much as I can. Just based on my own journey over this last. 23 years. Um, I started writing behind closed doors in 1995. So uh, a lot has happened and and just hoping that I can encourage, you know, women and men too, but you know, as a woman and, and I say this a lot, we have it hard in so many ways. And so just hoping that I could say at least something that can help women become all that God has created you to be. So. Mm Mm-hmm. <laughs> that has come up I, in every city. That's been the standalone title that folks have brought up, partly because they want to know if I've had a copycat, you know? So like, why did you write that? And I have, I mean, I I have to admit that I have. And I think a lot of women may have, even if it was in high school, maybe junior high, but you know, in your 20s. um, But yeah, I've experienced it. But the one thing that I would change with copycat, I didn't think about it while I was writing it, but I would change their occupations because the two women are authors. So when the book came out in January of last year, I started getting all of these email messages and inbox messages on Facebook saying Kimberly I just read your book and I enjoyed it but which author is copying you you know and I was like oh no nobody you know (laughs) and and that and I've not as far as I know I've not had that happen with an author but I could see where readers were thinking this must have really happened so yes I've experienced it but not with another author so yeah (laughs) no more questions comments Yes. Um, So for Charlotte, I didn't think about that for years and years. So whenever the question would come up, I would always say, of course, Blair Underwood. And every now and then, even Idris Elbin. That kind of came from my husband, you know. Um, But I never thought about her as much. And then in the last couple of years, kind of going back to Young and the Restless, and she actually just left there, but um, Michelle Morgan um, played the Hillary character she's Charlotte to me all day long because she's 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 beautiful and but she's devious and dirty when she wants to be and um, so yeah so I see her and I don't know what her age range is but um, you have to keep in mind Charlotte is 15 years younger than Curtis so you know there's that whole dynamic that I really want um, viewers to be able to see Mm -hmm. and the second part of your question Favorite authors, so I have a number of them um, for the most part. you know, I guess I would say they are female contemporary authors that write fiction and i 've been in a book club myself for nineteen years, so um, we read pretty much everything. It just depends on whose month it is and it 's their opportunity to make their selection and so we read across the board but I mean obviously I I have loved Terry McMillan from the very beginning she was a big motivation for me to even know that okay it's okay to write contemporary fiction and write in a way that we speak even when we're having conversation in our in the dialogue in the book um Connie Briscoe um I always loved I mean Elan Harris I loved and of course he was one of my my dearest dearest friends in the industry um B.B. Moore Campbell, her book, Your Blues Ain't Like Mine, is still my all time favorite book. Um, No book has really affected me um, in the way that her book did in all these years, for whatever that reason is. And I don't know, have any of you not read it? Because if you've not read it, um, I'll just say it kind of reminds you of the Emmett Till story. That's that's really what. But it's just that book. It was the first time I was still working full time then, because I hadn't even written my own book. And I remember. Hating to put it down, and I went to work the next day, and I thought about it the entire day. I've never had a book where I kept thinking about it. It's like, gosh, I can't wait to get off work so I can get back to it. Um, One of the one of the newer writers, not so new anymore, but um, I guess she's been out maybe since about 07 or 08 is Trice Hickman, and um, my book club absolutely loves her. So we read every single thing that she has out, and so I say not just because she's my dear friend, but just because we really love her work and. Mary Monroe is one of my all-time favorites. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yes. You know, I've not seen it. I've not watched it. And yeah, I, I and I shouldn't. I take that back. Um, when the first year that it came out, it started on the day that. Um, Whatever book I had out, I don't know, did it come out in 2015 or 2016? Whenever it started. My tour started that day. So, of course, I was on tour the entire time. So when the tour ended, um, it was into, like, that third week. So it was the third episode. And I turned it on, and I saw, like, that last half hour of it. And so that's all I've ever seen. So, I mean, I'll have readers, you know, tag me and different things. And some people say, oh, this kind of reminds me. And then some people say, no, it doesn't remind them. So I've always just been interested to hear because I hear it on both sides. So... Yes, yes. I know you said that Curtis Black is done, and I'm, I'm good with that. Uh-huh. But actually, after reading the last one, I really thought you would at least came out with one with Katrina. Well, On? Katrina. Yes, yes. Well, she's, in, she's either mentioned or in every chapter of the book, so... Yeah. But I really thought you would have before you ended it, completely ended it, that you would have at least came out with one strictly about her No, you you of have to use your imagination on what happens, you know. You know, eventually she grows up and you know, either she turns out well or she doesn't. That's all I can say. <laughs> Yes. Mm-hmm. I have not and when I started out on the tour I actually thought that I would. I hadn't thought about it while I was writing it and I'm glad that I did not have that fear because I probably would have stopped and moved on moved on to something else but when the tour started and the events began, I thought, oh gosh, you know, what if, and so ironically, and I had been sharing this around the country uh, for years, it was here at this library that um, did what I was doing now, speaking, answering questions, and so I just said, you know, if there are no more questions or comments, I will sign your books now, and that was it, and so there had been a man standing in the back of the room, um, because whatever room I was in, the door was in the back, I still remember that, and there was an aisle, and then it was like maybe the chairs on the side, and so he stood in the back, but he had a, a suit on and a black wool overcoat because this was January. You just knew he was a pastor. You could look at him and tell he was a pastor, and so I thought, oh, here it is, you know. So, um, but it wasn't what I thought, and so he just came. He said, I just wanted to come tonight because I'd heard you were going to be here. Um, someone had given him a copy of Casting the First Stone. He said, I read it. And he said, after I finished it, I had my secretary order copies and send it to all my pastor friends. And he said, in seminary, especially with young ministers, this should be required reading. um, Because maybe if they read, what happens... Um, to pastors who don't do what they say they've been called to do that this will be the result these will be the consequences so I always always remembered that and so that was you know just wonderful to have that kind of support Um, what I heard right away and I've continued to hear throughout the 18 years is what you heard me say a little bit earlier are the pastor's wives just coming to events and maybe leaning down and saying it or emailing me saying thank you for saying what I'm not able to say out loud you know thank you for telling our stories so mm yes yes Maybe so, um, but definitely after my nonfiction one, that, that's definitely going to be my priority now for this year um, and getting that done, so we'll see, but it will definitely if I do, it'll just be standalone titles. It, it won't be a series. Yes. What's that? The a movie. For the series? You were talking about the series. Oh, okay, yeah, so no, probably not, her, her goal is to make it a weekly TV series. Mm-hmm. I thought I saw, oh, okay, yes. <coughs> nope, that's not on my schedule this year, so would have been nice, huh? No, I have gone, I have gone to it before though. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Ms. Ramonda, thank you and thank you so much. Um, and uh, Mahogany Books for selling the book. So you know, independent booksellers, especially African American independent booksellers, we just don't see them nationwide anymore. So thank you all for supporting her. <laughs>
1: yes. Mm,
0: the hardest scene has been now, with Better Late Than Never. And I was actually way late turning this book in. I tend to be a little late and past my deadline, but never to this extent to where originally my release date was June 12th, and we had to move it to July 31st. Um, But the scenes with Curtis and his sister every time i had to write those and knowing that she was dying and they're trying to make everything right and you know her thinking about her two children that she's going to leave behind they're adult children but she's extremely close to them and she has the marriage that every woman would want to have and now she's got to leave her husband and so those were hard and it was the opposite it was her having to leave her children I remember what it was like when my mom died at 57 years old, and I knew she deteriorated over a two-year period, and I knew what was going to happen, but even in all of that, with her knowing that she was going to lose her life, she spent it uplifting me and trying to prepare me, knowing that she was going to leave here. So um, those were were tough. I shed tears, and, and I don't usually do that so much with my books that I write, but I definitely cried a few times with Better Late Than Never. Yes. Oh my gosh, how can you come? I want you to come off. So beautiful. Come on. <laughs> so the question is, have I ever thought about writing children's chapter books? So ask me if I'm going to write something for their daughters just like you. So I'm definitely going to think about that. Would you like to I'm sorry, but I know you guys don't mind that. So what a sweetheart. What a sweetheart. Yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you how I got started. So a little bit differently than some of my writer friends, the close ones, you know, a lot of them will tell you that they knew when they were small children that they wanted to be writers. And um, I hear that even sometimes when I'm just, you know, reading about authors that I don't know. And for me, that just wasn't the case. It wasn't until 95. I was 30 years old and finally sat down to start writing. And that was evenings and weekends because I was working as a financial analyst for city government, um, for community development. Um, Before that, I worked uh, for the state of Illinois. And before that, I'd worked at almost every company you can think of corporate-wise, you know, corporate America. And But there was always something missing. There always felt like there was this void and that I was supposed to be doing something else and, you know, kept trying. And, you know, I'd be passed over for promotions um, when clearly I must have been qualified because now I'm training somebody who got the job. And um, And so after a while, I thought, you know, there's got to be something different. And that just made me start thinking back to those elementary school and junior high and high school teachers, and even my professors and instructors in college. Because all the way through, I had heard, you have a gift for writing or you have a gift for storytelling. And I just didn't pay attention to it because, in all honesty, I didn't think I was doing anything that was any different than any other student, except you're trying to do good work and you're trying to get an A. And so I, I just didn't see that I could have a career in that. And I did think that, okay, I'll maybe do something journalism related I did love that and ended up um, having a journalism class in seventh grade so I wrote for the school newspaper and um, did some things with we had closed circuit tv at our junior high school and so we produced a little like a mini morning show at the bell and you know before school actually got started and so we had to audition by writing our scripts you know a certain amount of them and just kind of go through and I the first year that they did that um, I was the person I was the first anchor. Um, for that semester. But still, I didn't think that was anything out of the ordinary. So, you know, that's all the way back in the 70s. And high school, I kept hearing it. And so then I thought, well, you know, I've heard it enough. Maybe I will just, um, you know, take a look at it. But I started doing my research on writing jobs, you know, how, you know, whether it was books or, you know, newspapers, magazines, whatever it might be. But I started researching, and when I saw the salaries of writers, I thought, I'm definitely not going to be one of those, you know. <laughs> that's not going to happen, you know. As a kid, a lot of us, you know, you grow up with these great ambitions, and you're just thinking, I'm going to make all the money I can make, and I'm going to live a great life. And, um, but that's also now the reason... When I go into the high schools and the colleges and the universities and I tell students, please, please, please don't make the mistake that I made. Don't let money be the deciding factor. Um, with what you're going to have to do with a very, very big part of the rest of your life, and you know, really figure out your passion and your purpose. We've all been placed here for a reason, and we all have the different talents and gifts and abilities, and even if we are all cooks, or we're all writers, or we're all attorneys, or maybe we own our own cleaning services, we all will do it differently, and we all have a set of people that we need to do it for, and so I learned my lesson the hard way, but that made me think back to those teachers, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to give the a try and so that's when I sat down and started doing it um, in April 95 at the end of that year um, the book was finished and I did write every weekend, every weekend and on the weekends and uh, weekday I should say weekends and the holidays and did that for the seven months and I was able to do that because my husband just picked up all other responsibilities around the house so that I could focus on that and when he was working really long hours then my mom would come over and she'd say, well, Okay, I'll just come get the clothes and wash those and, you know, cook food so you guys have that for the next two to three days and so it just became a family affair. I, I can't even imagine how I would have done what I did um, without the support of my husband and my mom and my brothers who are eight and six years younger than me. And I used to say, well, gosh, they they must think they're the boss of me or something because they would call in the evening when they knew I was home from work sometimes just to say, just checking, just making sure you're writing, you know, just checking. And um, so I am grateful for that. And went on though, you know, long story short, started submitting to literary agents because, literary agents are really what the publishing houses want you to have versus sending them solicited um, manuscripts and so I compiled a list of 14 of them and ones that I knew of who were representing some authors that I enjoyed and some that I just took a chance on and sent it out and I was really naive in the process though because I sent them out, and after I sent out 14 query letters, and I thought, well, maybe I shouldn't have done that because how will I choose one of them and turn down the other 13, you know? (laughs) How many of you know it didn't turn out that way? And, you know, first I received that first rejection letter, and, you know, okay, you know, I have one. Then it was the next one, and the next one until I was rejected by every single one of them. And so that was disappointing, and I thought, well, you know, I could just go ahead and give up, but I can maybe do one more thing. I know editors at the publishing houses don't want to receive it from me directly, but I don't really have anything to lose. So I compiled a list of those editors who had um, published books by Terry McMillan, Eric Drum, Dickey, B.B. Moore Campbell. The list just sort of went on. And once again, I was rejected by every single one. Um, There was one who said, I can see your talent in terms of writing and rendering interesting characters and storylines, but it's really hard to get the house behind a new writer um, at this time for us when you have no credit. So I hadn't written for the newspaper or magazines or short stories. I had just started out just with the book. And so still, it was Thanks, but no thanks. And so then I was discouraged and I thought, this is it. You know, I've done this. I thought it was a good idea and was hoping to maybe even write a second book and just said, you know, I'm going to move on. So I applied to um, two MBA programs and um, was accepted in both, chose one of them, went ahead and registered for the first class. And that's when my mom knew I was serious about. You know, I'm done with the whole book thing and trying to get it published. And she said, I just don't think you should give up. I don't think you should do that. I don't know anything about publishing, but I do know we've been passing around copies of your manuscript to so many women here locally, and they're saying they enjoyed it. And I just think that means something. Um, And again, you shouldn't give up. And I heard her, but that's that same mom who, when I was just a toddler, had me thinking I could move mountains. And so my mom, would she have told me how awful the book was? I doubt that, you know, very seriously. And so I was like, I appreciate it. My mom had supported me in everything I've ever wanted to do and encouraged me and, you know, pushed me along and kept me going. But I thought, mm, I'm going to move on. But then it was my dear husband, Will, who said, you know, you have this background in business. Why can't you start your own company and publish the book yourself? And that's where the idea of self-publishing came about. <laughs> So I am you know just just still in awe and and grateful to my husband for believing in me at that time and my mom a little bit more than I believed in myself and so it's kind of like okay to do this the right way based on reading the self-publishing manual by Dan Pointer which I read a lot of books on the subject, but I do still tell everyone, if you read just that book, you could do what I did. I mean, he told you everything from beginning to end, but I still knew it was going to be an investment. And so he said, you know, I'll just borrow the money from my 401k account. And then we had to take out a small loan from our credit union, use some of our personal money that, you know, was that we just had in the bank. And so I thought, but what if this doesn't work? You know, have you thought about that? What if this doesn't work? And we've spent all of this money. And he looked at me and he just said, well, if it doesn't work, then you'll just move on to something else. But, you know, do you want to go even 10 years still wondering if you could have had some success with it? And um, I look back now and we're way past 10 years. And, you know, so I'm thankful that I heard him. And, I laugh um, a lot and I I share this story that uh, that was June of 1996 when I started my business and in September of that year that first 3,000 copies of the books came back from the printer and you know getting ready um, to get the book out nationally but we started locally had a a really big reception at home and it didn't hurt that I worked for the city of Rockford so I knew the mayor and saw him on a regular basis. Um, uh, One of the uh, the then legal director before he went on to be um, a state assemblyman Um, I can't remember exactly what his position was but I knew him because he used to review my contracts for the, the housing that we were doing and so when I was able to include their names in the press release saying they're going to be at the opening reception, that really got all of the media on board and the newspaper. And so 500 people ended up coming out to the event. And so we went home that night and so Will had another big bright idea. And so you know, it's like, okay, we've already taken a big risk, but okay, I, I listened and, and I was encouraged and I heard that. But then he said, so you know when you go to work this week, cause this was a Sunday night, you know you're gonna have to give your two week notice, right? And I thought, oh, the man has really lost his mind, you know, now. You know, he's taken this too far. And, you know, what are we going to do with one income? I was terrified of that. And we, neither of us, we earned a good living. We certainly weren't wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, but we could pay our bills on time. We could pay them before the due date, we could save a little bit for a rainy day in retirement, and we could go out to eat if we want to. To me, that's a good life, and and that's all I had ever wanted. And so he said, look, we won't have money to just kind of throw away or spend unnecessarily, but we'll be able to pay our bills. And if you don't leave your job and if you don't give this 100 percent of your time, I don't think you're going to be successful with it. And so I thought about it and, you know, terrified when they say, you know, do it afraid. You know, I I, I think about that now. Um, I went to work um, that week um, that we were off that Monday, took a vacation day, but went to work that Tuesday and gave my two week notice and I've been writing full time ever since nineteen ninety six. So pardon me? Oh yeah. <laughs> does Will have any brothers is the question. <laughs> He's definitely a keeper. He has been a, a great husband. Before my mom passed away, um, she said, you know, I always you know, have loved, loved my son-in-law, and that's why I always say he's my son and not my son-in-law. She always was saying that, and um, but when she became ill, she would stay with us, um, you know, days at a time. I would kind of talk her into, she's always very independent, never wanted to feel like a burden, but my mom was everything to me, so I would always say, you could never be that, you know, you could never be a burden, and Will loved her so much, he didn't want her to be at home alone, so we would just say, well, just spend the night, you know, and then we'd kind of say, well, Mom, you know, I'm kind of busy, you know, to kind of pack you up and take you home. What about another night? You know, so it would turn out like that. Um, but the lady that was doing our hair at that time, my mom never said this to me, but she said one time when you dropped her off to get her hair done, she said, "I knew that my son-in-law loved my daughter, but I, when I was living with them, I really got to see it for myself. You know, it's not just on the outside." And so she's like, "I know she's going to be okay." And what she did say to me was. Um, you do have a great husband and a great marriage and you always wanted somebody who would love you as much as you love them and you have that. But you, I don't know if you know how blessed you are to have a man support you in every single thing that you say you want to do. So. And so next month, um, September Uh, September 14th, um, we will have been married for 28 years, so... And as grueling, I got to cut it off. One more question, okay? I do what my husband always says. I get carried away at my events because this is the best part of what I do—to be able to do all of this with you. So I'm sorry for holding you hostage, because that's what that's what he would say. Um, but I just want to say um, before I take one more question, um, when I talk about how grueling these tours are, imagine. You know, ending tonight, going to bed, automatically packing. You know, some of the flights are at 6, 7 in the morning. So, you know, we're up and we're out, and we're doing this every single day. 27 national tours, and my husband has traveled with me on every single one of them. So just thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, And then I uh, was saying my publicist is here, um, Linda Duggins um, at Hachette Book Group. Um, Yeah, Grand Central Publishing. Um, she has, yeah, she's, she's been the, the, the publicist that any author um, should have and would want to have. And um, when you have somebody who takes care of you business wise, but they also become a friend and a sister who treats you and cares, a lot, cares about you like family, that's when it's special. And so thank you, Linda. Thank you for everything. Okay. Yes. Right, right, so, how do you that? so I'm hoping now, well, first up this is the first year in a long time where I've only released one book, so I've done a lot this year at home we've traveled, we've been able to see family and um, I, I thought about him today, and I've been thinking about it. Um, My youngest nephew uh, and youngest niece uh, are my brother's children. They're in Oklahoma City. Now they were in Nashville. But about three years ago, I was doing something in in the D.C. area. And so I was on the phone with them. I was in my hotel. And I think it was a speaking engagement because it wasn't during my tour. And I was on the phone just talking to the kids before I was about to get dressed. And my brother passed them the phone. And so uh, William was saying, well, where are you, Auntie Kim? And I said, I'm in D.C. And I said, you know, you know where President Obama lives, and you know, First Lady Michelle. You know, I'm all excited. I'm thinking he's going to be really impressed. And then he said, Yeah, the White House. And I said, Yeah, that's where Auntie Kim is. And he said, Well, when are you going to come and see us? <laughs> And I literally broke into tears on the phone. I mean, you can tell I'm the emotional. And so my brother got back on the phone, and he's like, "What's wrong?" I was kind of like, "What happened?" And so it made me think about how much I've really been missing, um, just with my family and and even some of my friends. And um, so I'm enjoying that, um, you know, visiting we uh, my stepson and daughter-in-law and our grandson. We've been there three times just in the last year now, and so all of that is making a big difference. But on a day when I'm at home, which is home is really my favorite place to be, law and order marathons are my, that's my favorite. That's my favorite thing to do, just back to back to back. So, <laughs> okay, so one, one more, and then that's thats it. Yes? When do expect to read another book? You know, And I know, yeah. So I don't know if it'll be January because we're already, well, this is August. So, you know, we'll see. But hopefully not too long after that. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you all again for supporting me all these years. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.